Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's good to be here with you all. <clears throat> well, we're going to be continuing on in uh, Matthew chapter 5. I think I'm close to, or maybe a little over uh, a year ago, started us down this path. I've been through the, the Beatitudes and gone through Jesus um, and the law. And as he continues to go through the law here and his expounding of that, um, all the while pointing to the, the, the eternal aspect uh, and that being the main theme. <clears throat> In fact, if I, I think if Jesus were to title, well, I guess if I were to come up with a title for it, Sermon on the Mount's best, I guess, but um, it, it would be uh, something to do with eternal righteousness. Um, because that's really the main theme of of this, and uh, eternal and internal righteousness. But uh, we're going to pick up today in verse 27. So if you would uh, go with me there to Matthew 5, 27, and uh, let us stand and read the Word of God here through verse 30. Pay homage and reverence to it. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, allow me to pray. Dear Father, thank you for uh, bringing us together again. I thank you for all the worship and the praise that took place this morning and the, the giving of the glory to you. Uh, it is a, a necessity that we praise you, that we proclaim the truth, and it's so satisfying uh, to the soul to uh, be here, Lord. And I, I pray, Lord, you'd help us to comprehend and understand your word. Help me to, uh, to preach it um, and to clearly... Uh, display your glory, your grace, your love, your justice, your righteousness, everything that is you and your truth, Lord. Uh, so please help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these, in these scriptures here um, that we're, we're going to go through from verse 27 through 30, and also from when I preached last time from uh, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus dealt with murder. Uh, he's dealing here with adultery. But in, in, this, uh, in this scripture, our Lord is dealing with more than murder and adultery. He's dealing with a lot more than that. And the, the, he's chose murder and adultery as the first two uh, simply because... These are the most recognizable, easy to understand um, moral issues, easy to understand sinful things that um, we come in contact with. Uh, everyone would have to agree, whether unbeliever or believer, that murder and adultery are wrong. Um, we have a conscience to know that. And even if someone were to try to make excuse to say that murder and adultery weren't always wrong, uh, then they wouldn't really have a foundation to stand on in regards to that. So everyone would have to confess uh, that that's wrong. And that this great evil then becomes the standard uh, by which people claim their own righteousness. So we, um, the, the good, self-righteous people of Jesus' day, just like the good, self-righteous people of our day, and I say that good in quotes, um, they point to these things and say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. Or at least I'm not an adulterer like this person. 
uh, because I'm not doing the physical act of murder and adultery, then you know, I think myself to be good. And this is exactly uh, what Jesus is dealing with. And he keeps on throughout this sermon exposing their hypocrisy and, sh- and shedding light on their self righteous and bringing the truth to bear on the situation. You see, they figured, like people do today, that they've never committed the act of murder. They've never committed the act of adultery. They figured they were keeping the law and were free because they were, they were keeping the law. They were free to criticize, be angry. They were free to be vengeful, to hate their brother without any reason. They figured that since they'd never commit adultery, they were free to be lustful. Oh, it's, it's, it's nothing wrong to look. They were free to be prideful as long as they stopped short of doing the physical act. And just as the teaching to the children this morning about is there anything we can do? Can we be good enough? No. Just because we don't do the physical act doesn't make us any better or good enough. So as long as they stop short of the, of the act, they... They believed they were just fine. They were justified. You see, the, the religions of man, the justification of the self-righteous, they always find uh, some kind of standard that they can meet, and the same thing was going on with the Pharisees. This is, a, is an example to us, because we all come from that Pharisaical um, idealism or that Pharisaical um, perspective that we can we can be good as long as we stop short as long as we don't go over this line Uh, but the problem is is that the line isn't where we really think it is and so Jesus he exposes the murder and the adultery of the heart and that their so-called love and devotion to God was superficial You see, because they negated the spiritual aspect of the law, their keeping of the law, if you can call it that, was merely superficial. It was outwardly on the surface. Therefore, their love and devotion to God was the same way. It was only surface. It was only an appearance. It was only skin deep. It was superficial. They had voided the spiritual essence of of the law. And this is what Jesus is returning us back to. And let's look at Romans 7:13 through 14. Was then that which is good <clears throat> made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good, that sin, by the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The law is spiritual. In other words, what Paul is saying, the law is good there in verse 13. It's good. Thou shalt not murder is good. What the Pharisees were saying, what the teaching that they had, you've heard it said of old time, the teaching, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill, that was a good commandment. They weren't wrong in that. They just stopped short. And so their devotion to God stopped short. Wasn't good enough. Thou shalt not commit adultery is good. These are good commandments. All the law is good. But you see, the law isn't just outwardly. The law is not simply a list of things to do. The law is not simply just something that we have a checklist and we gauge ourselves and say, well, I've did six out of the ten, so I'm doing pretty well. The law is spiritual. So these, the, all the law is good. And so he says that there. 
Was then that which is good made death to me? Question mark. The law is good. But no, it's so that I would know just how exceedingly sinful I am. And just how destructive of a force sin is. The law which is good reveals to me the nature of sin and the nature of my flesh and how they both render death. That's what he's saying there in verse 13. Did it become death to me? The law is good. How can it be death to me? No. It clearly shows the destructive force of sin. The law reveals to me the nature of sin and the nature of my flesh. That's what he's saying. The law is spiritual. He goes on, verse 14, that the law is spiritual. It's not only skin deep. It's not only superficial. It's not only on the surface. It goes deep. The law is spiritual. It touches the heart. But then he says, but the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. So, Therefore, while operating in the flesh, I have no hope to keep the law and please God. Because the law is spiritual, but yet I'm carnal, you see. And isn't this what Jesus is exposing to the Pharisees, to the scribes, to the self-righteous of our day? You have the law, okay. You say you're keeping it. You say that this is your righteousness, but the law is spiritual. And even going back here in Romans 7, this is exactly what Paul said slayed him when he realized the law was spiritual. In verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, For without the law, sin was dead. And in verse 9, For I was alive without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. There was a realization there that he thought he was doing pretty well, but then he realized the law is spiritual. Thou shalt not covet. How can I I stop that? What, what, What do I need to do to keep that commandment? So the law is spiritual through and through. We cannot think of the law sometimes in Christian circles, especially in modern, contemporary, evangelical circles. We seem to think that we're detached from it. That no, we're we're under we're we're just spiritual now. You know, we're we're in the age of grace and we have um we're not under the law, and that's true. We're under grace. We're, we're under, but the law is spiritual. And so the law is now written on our hearts. Now we're able to have an outflow of a love for the law, truly, and not just look at it as a restraint like it is to the unbeliever. That's what the law is to an unbeliever, you know, a, a restraint. It keeps, them at, it keeps their sin at bay, and when you remove that restraint, it just goes hog wild. And so the law is spiritual through and through. And so the fact is that no matter how pious and religious one may be on the outside, they are sinful on the inside apart from Christ. Let that sink in for a moment because being sinful on the inside, what Jesus is talking about, there is... It leaves us up the river Niagara without a paddle. Now, Jesus here in these verses, 27 through 30, Matthew 5, does primarily two things. First, in verses 27 and 28, Jesus presents the true standard of the law. He presents the spiritualness of the law. He presents a standard that they can't keep. He exposes their hypocrisy and shows them 
what true righteousness is. Secondly, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus gives the prescription on what one's attitude must be in dealing with sin. The seriousness, the seriousness of sin, that sin will send you to hell if left untreated. One must flee from sin at all cost. And this is the attitude of a true Christian to mortify the flesh. Now, Jesus does many other things here aside from those two, but that is the, the primary thing, and that's the two things I'm going to stick to um, because of my own limitations. But let's look at the text, beginning in verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So we've gone from uh, the, the issue of murder, which is taking a life unlawfully, slaying another person, an image bearer of God, how heinous of a crime that is. And now we've gone to sexual immorality. What those two things really are. The true definitions of those things. What is adultery and who is an adulterer? And this is a pretty difficult one. I remember when I first became a Christian... um, this was one that was really difficult for me because at some point in time, I think all young men struggle with lust. And it's something that it has to be defeated. It has to be, um, you have to get away from it because it's so serious. What is an adulterer? Who is an adulterer? In a broader sense, He's really dealing with what is sin, isn't he? Not just what is a murder and what's an adulterer, but what is sin? Well, the definition of sin that I believe John gives in, in 1 John is it's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But again, it's not lawlessness just on the outside. It's, it's, it's a lawlessness on the inside that... And the reason that is is because we, we sometimes, if we're honest, we do things because we know people see us. We refrain from things because we know people look at us. We know we want to keep a certain image. I think that's something we all struggle with. And so that is a restraint. But we, we harbor sin in our hearts and we... we operate in lust sometimes and we think well no one really sees that but God sees it and God says how does he judge he says in Matthew sorry John 7 don't judge according to appearance but make a righteous judgment he says uh, he says that he is the, the one who tests the heart and tries the reins so in a broader sense he's dealing with what is sin Now listen, if you do not address sin and give a proper definition of it, and if you do not make sin personal as opposed to generalizing sin, then you can't present the gospel truly or effectively. You have to present sin and give an accurate definition of it. Present it for what it is. The rotten, dirty, corrupted, gross rebellion to God, the, the destructive force it is in our society, in our world, we see it everywhere. We hear heinous stories about how people have committed such atrocities. 
and how it has doomed our nation, our world, many of us, our families. Sin is ugly. It has to be exposed. We cannot present the gospel without it. And we have to give, we have to make it personal. What I mean by that is instead of generalizing sin, is when, we, when you share the gospel with somebody or when you preach the gospel, um, you can't gloss over sin in a general sense as if to say, um, you, you simply can't say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and just leave it at that. Because what a sinner does every time is they say, well, yeah, I know, I, I've lied, I've told lies, but so is everyone. So I'm no different than anybody. And, and, and somehow that, that gives some an excuse. Sin has to be personal. You have to understand that you have broken the law of God, that you are guilty. You have to make that clear in some way. Maybe asking poignant questions. Not in an attempt really to judge the person. Although we make a righteous judgment, but really you're trying to get them to judge themselves in a, in a correct light. Yeah, someone who thinks they're good. Are, are you really? What about this? I mean, what do you do about that? You have to make sin personal. If you don't understand sin... You won't understand anything that God does except for maybe uh, Him as a creator. All without excuse because they have the natural revelation. But if you don't understand sin, you won't understand what God's doing throughout the Scriptures. Without the doctrine of sin and how exceedingly offensive it is to God, you can't understand the gospel. You can't understand God's love, God's grace, God's equity and justice. His judgments, His law. You simply won't understand the Bible unless you understand the doctrine of sin and how exceedingly wicked it is. Once more, you cannot understand salvation without understanding sin. As long as sin is understood as a minor thing, then salvation will be understood as minor. No big deal. As long as sin is looked at as oopsie-daisy, as long as sin is looked at as just some small thing, and you overshadow that small thing of sin with your works of righteousness. Oh yes, I know that I, I sin, I live in this sin, but I also do a lot of good things. I go to church and I... You, you diminish sin. You, you diminish the severity of the offense to God. You, you diminish the destructive force of what sin is really doing. And so, therefore, salvation is a minor thing. The cross is a minor thing when you don't understand sin. So just like before, when he was addressing murder, Jesus starts out here in verse 27 with a contrast between what they had been taught and what the truth was. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. He's adding back what their teachers had removed or diminished He's also declaring his authority. You have heard, but I say. In fact, at the end of the sermon, it says there that the people were astonished because they'd never heard anyone speak like this, that he spoke with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. You have heard, but I say. He is declaring his authority. I have authority here. This is what you've been taught, but this is what I say. Let me show you the truth. You've heard that it was said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, again, we know that thou shalt not commit adultery. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But see, he's adding back. He, he's about to add back in verse 28 what had been removed or diminished. What they had been taught was not wrong in the sense that it was error. But it was wrong in that it stopped short. Adultery was a very serious crime. It carried the same penalty as murder. Let's look at Leviticus 20.10. It says this, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Did you know that that hasn't changed? That's how God sees that. Man's law may have changed in that. Man's law says that men can marry men. But that's not even a real thing. That's not what a marriage is. That hasn't changed. God's law there, he he views it as worthy of death. One way that we can see that clearly is that we all die. Every one of us is going to die because the wages of sin is death. So, very serious crime. But adultery was even more than that. This is important. Adultery was even more than that. It's a spiritual condition. It's more than, than just the unfaithfulness to a spouse or the uh, sexual intercourse with another, uh, another one's spouse. Adultery isn't even limited to sexual sin at all, but idolatry. The two are linked, just like lust and coveting. Sometimes those two words and sins are interchanged. Paul said that in Romans uh, 7, 7, which we just read. You can commit adultery even if you're a virgin. Let's look at what the Bible says about spiritual adultery. Some of these verses I've wrote down, so I'll get to them fast, and I'm going to have to turn to them. Judges 2.17. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. That is an accurate description of America today. We had, for the most part, national laws that were based in God's law. But we, after succeeding generations, sought to change those laws, didn't we? Didn't hearken to the judges. We had a recent Supreme Court ruling that was righteous on its, you know, that was a righteous order striking down Roe v. Wade. But what happened after that? People rioted in the street, didn't hearken to their judges, didn't serve the God of their fathers, but went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. Spiritual adultery, unfaithfulness to God. This is the spiritualness of the law turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in. Psalm 106.39 Thus were they defiled with their own works and went a-whoring after their own inventions. We'll just invent things to believe in. We'll just come up with our own religion. We'll just make up something. Went a-whoring with their own inventions. Inventions of evil. 1 Chronicles 5.25 
see how fast I can get there. First Chronicles 5.25 And they transgressed against the God of their fathers and went a-whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before them. So they had not only just went after these strange gods of the people in the land, but they had seen already that God had destroyed those people for idolatry and given the land over to them. But they went a-whoring after the gods of the people of the land whom God destroyed before their eyes, before them. This is very descriptive of things, how things go on today. Uh, we clearly see the destructive force of sin all around us. We see God's judgment on sin. And still, it's enticing. And still, we, um, we go after those things. I have one more. Ezekiel 6, 9. And they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations whither they shall be carried captives because I am broken with their whorish heart which hath departed from me and with their eyes which go a-whoring after their idols and they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. Notice the whorish heart there and the departing from me, God says, with their eyes which go a-whoring after their idols. Spiritual adultery. You know, there was a time, this common word that's used in all these verses, there was a time, you know, we, we have a, um, maybe a woman who's known to be, or even a man who's known to sleep around or be a loose woman or something like this. We called them whores. That word has fallen out of favor because it seems to be too offensive. But these are descriptive words that really cause us to see the ugliness of sin. And so I'm thankful that the authorized version keeps that word in there, that this is the seriousness of it. But instead of it being a word that, instead of using a word that invokes shame, or a descriptive word that causes us to realize the, the nature of the sin, people are proud of it now. People are, they revel and glory in it. But those things are a shame. Those things bring destruction. And if someone, if you could get someone to examine themselves by the law, to judge themselves, they would see that, the destruction that's happened in my life, the consequences that I've had to go through is because of sin. Not that we're better because we all experience consequences from sin on some degree, but it's to be something looked at as a shame. Spiritual adultery, so prevalent. Jesus says there, you may be stopping short of the physical act of adultery, but the law does not stop there. And so you are guilty of the transgression. Let me turn back to Matthew 5 here. And this is how you're guilty of the adultery in the sight of God. You look with lust. 
looking with lust makes you culpable, guilty of adultery. I remember the first, after I was recently converted, the first time I read that, I was devastated. It should still be devastating to us today. That whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now this looking to lust after is not a casual glance, but it's a gaze that invokes lust and continues in that lust. So it's not something that just crosses your path and you look at it, but it's something that you maybe take a second or third look and that the lust is invoked and it continues to gain traction. I realize these are difficult things to talk about. But this is a truth that we have to come to grips with. The word lust in the Greek, if I can pronounce this right, epithemeo, it actually means to covet, desire to have, a desire for. So Jesus says you may not do the act of adultery, but you desire to. You're looking with lust upon strange women. May just prove that you desire them. I had to think of pornography and the impact that it's had on our society and even the church. I read some statistics, but I don't want to. Um, I don't want to speak to them here because I can't remember them, and I don't want to get it wrong. But it has had a devastating impact on our society. Um, young men are now not even desiring to be married. They're not even desiring marriage. Um, there's children born out of wedlock. And even in the church, it's a destructive force. And people viewed it um, just as people view sexual immorality because of the sexual revolution that we saw in the 1960s, people began to view it as just a, bi a biological function. That sort of kind of how Paul addressed the Corinthians uh, in 1 Corinthians where, you know, he's somebody, you have this saying, the um, meat for the body and the, or food for the body and the body for food. It's just biology. And this was... This was the issue. If it's just biology, if it's just superficial, um, then it wouldn't really be causing the problems we see. Because it, it, it does cause the problem. It's more than that. Uh, it's such a destructive force. One that mo most men at one time or another encounter and may become easily entangled with. Pornography is an epidemic that must be dealt with and an enemy that must be defeated. I've heard that many who have an addiction to pornography, the addiction is on the same level as an addiction to heroin. That's how difficult it is to overcome. It rewires the brain after so long of a time. It is an evil that cannot be understated. It's amazing to me that there's nothing new under the sun. That Jesus was speaking to this even back given the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe not pornography specifically, but the same thing really. The lust of the eye that makes you culpable to adultery. Let's look at Proverbs 7, 4 through 27. Sort of a long group of verses, but I think it's necessary or beneficial for us to look at this. Proverbs 7, 4. 
and we'll be, it'll be through the end of the chapter. That's fine that we read a long group of verse because you know what? When, you, when a preacher reads the Bible, that's the only part of the sermon that's absolutely perfect. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths a young man, void of understanding, passing through the street near a corner, and he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him with an impudent face and said unto him, I have peace offerings with me this day. I have paid my vows. Therefore come, therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves. For the good man is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. Hearken unto me now therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. So a couple things I want to notice. I want you to notice how subtle and discreet the enemy is. How cunning and enticing. It didn't take much. Just a subtle passing by and, and a instead of turning aside, he turned in to her. Notice in verse 7 that the young man being lured in is void of understanding. A simple one, he's called. He's void of understanding. He doesn't grasp the seriousness. He doesn't grasp that if he were to know that he's about to be led to destruction, he's about to have an arrow pierced through his liver, that he's about to go the way of hell, He's void of understanding. You know, we have to make the world understand this. How serious it is. Notice in verse 9, the lewd woman. She's lurking in the twilight, in the dark of night. Just gives an image of evil. Why was the young man there? shouldn't have even been there. And this is something what Jesus is alluding to when he says uh, what we'll see in the, the last two verses there. But if, you're right, if, if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Don't even go there. Perhaps if he understood how serious it was. 
and exceedingly sinful it was, and how lust can bring down the strongest of the strong. And he would not be in that place. But the moment that he yields, it says, he goes like an ox to slaughter. That very moment that he yields to her enticing, he goes like an ox to the slaughter. He's done for. She's got him. That's all she wrote. Now notice the warning in verses 25 through 27. Let's use this young man, this simple one who lacks understanding, as a warning to us. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. And without Christ, we're not immune. We cannot stand against the wiles of the enemy, against the enticing of the lust without him. Her house is in the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. When Jesus says there in verse 28 of Matthew 5 that I say unto you, he's brandishing his authority. I thank God that he shows us his love in preaching and instructing and giving us his authority. If our authority only rested in man and the teachings and the doctrines and confessions and all these things, then we'd, we'd be like the young man without understanding. His authority was greater than the Pharisees, greater than their traditions. Now notice... Notice that he does not say, let's see, in verse 28, But I say to you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Notice that he does not say that the lustful look causes the adultery, but that the adultery had already taken place in the heart, and that is what prompted the look. Because you see, he says there, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already. If he would have said that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust hath committed adultery. But no, he says has committed adultery where they're already. And again, this is a continual look. So the adultery is prompting the look. It's a heart condition is the point. The, the, the adultery that's in the heart is prompting the look. He's saying that it's the heart that's the problem that causes the look, not the look causing the adultery, because the adultery is already there. Now in verses 29 and 30, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Brothers, I think that clock's a little fast. Jesus is not saying there that this is an outward remedy to a spiritual condition. He's not saying, hey, cut your hand off and 
you'll be fine. Because if you cut your right hand off to avoid sin, your left hand would work overtime to make up for the missing right hand. If you plucked your right eye out, then your left eye would start working overtime. So Jesus is not saying that there's an outward remedy to a spiritual condition. You see, to the Jew, the right side, the right eye, the right hand, the, the right foot, arm, leg, etc. represented the better part of the two. The right side was the position of honor. And so he's simply saying, do not hold anything back in turning away from sin. Do not hold anything back in turning from sin and turning to me. Repent and believe the gospel. Don't let anything entice you away from that. Even if it was your right hand. Even if that's your livelihood. And I use my hands for working. If it's your right hand, this is how serious it is. Don't hold anything back. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, that if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There is a self-denial that's necessary to follow Jesus. There's a denial of the flesh that's necessary to repentance. So we must deny our flesh and its lust in order to follow Jesus. This doesn't mean we don't stumble. But we will not stay down. That's what it means. I think people today may tell Jesus that his evangelism method wasn't very good. Because he didn't sell it. He didn't come and say, what do I got to do to get you into Jesus today? He didn't come and say, you know, you're, you're going to have a, a good life. You know, turn away from those, those sins or weighing you down and just turn and follow me. You, you'll be fine. I mean, he's, he's basically saying, like, do you understand what you're doing? To follow me, this is what it means. Have you counted the cost? Have you denied yourself? You remember he turned the people away when he fed the 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fish? He turned to them and said, you only follow me because your belly's full. He turned them away. He wasn't a very good church grower. In many ways, it's the direct opposite of how people... the methods that people use to grow the church to grow the kingdom of god and we want to most most churches we want to give them hot chocolate and cookies and whatever just bring them in bring them in and let's just see how many seats we can get full not concerned about the quality of the converts but anyway the the issue here of the the remedy that he gives in in dealing with this sin uh it's not an easy one not a not an easy pill to swallow a hard one but hey, you know what? Well, you know, you talk about the lust of the eye. You know, pornography being such a, a, an evil and an issue of our day. Some of us don't need to have smartphones. Some of us need to throw them away. Some of us don't need to have TVs. We need to put our foot through them. Get it out of your life. That's what he's saying. We must be willing to give up whatever is necessary to follow Jesus. Jesus is better than anything we could hold on to anyway. All of us, I mean, I I still struggle with sin, but when I think about, is this better than Jesus? Would I give up Jesus for this? Absolutely not. And over and over again throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is drawing us to the inward, to the spiritual condition. Even the faithful Christian who has many years of following Christ under his belt still has the tendency to default back to and rest in the outward actions. So we must be reminded how the main issue is the heart. And this is what's necessary to make a righteous judgment. From John 7, 23 through 24, I'm just going to read that real quick. Uh, the issue was that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. He says, if, any, if a man on the Sabbath day receives circumcision, 
that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to the appearance, but judge after, but judge righteous judgment. So you can't let your judgment be just superficial either. It can't just be on the surface. We have to examine what's going on behind the scenes. This is what a, a jury and a good judge seeks to do in a, in a trial of any kind, a, a murder trial or something like this. I mean, they seek to uncover the hidden things to find out the truth and not just judge uh, superficially. So the unbelieving sinner must have something to justify themselves. That's what they were doing. I didn't commit the physical act of adultery. And all they know is the outward because they're spiritually dead. All they really can go by is the appearance. This is why, again, in evangelism, we must apply the law and prompt them to take a hard look at their own heart to judge themselves by the proper standard, which is still the law of God. And in that, we expose sin that's on the inside. Many people can justify sin on the outside, but no one can clean up or justify sin on the inside. That is the root of the sin on the outside. And only when the unbeliever does this will they flee to the cross of Christ for rescue. I want to touch on, uh, before I close, a couple of things about self-denial in accordance with um, these last couple of verses from uh, Matthew 5. Self-denial. A training instrument for holiness. We were talking the other night about how um, when you go on a fast and then you eat again, how good the food tastes after you've completed the fast. Self-denial is a training instrument for holiness. Let's look at some verses here that I'm going to try to go through uh, pretty fast. Uh, Matthew 18, 8. This is similar to what he's going through here in Matthew chapter 5, but he says it a little bit different. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. So in other words, he's, what he adds here is that it's better for you to enter into life halt or maimed. There's nothing that you're going to give up that's worth losing your soul. There's, there's no sin that you could possibly grab onto that's so great and so enjoyable that it's worth being cast into hell. It's better for you to go into heaven, into life everlasting with just a stump, just no feet and no arms. I mean, that's better. Uh, let's see. Mark ten twenty eight, Leaving home and friends. Mark ten twenty eight. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. You're not going to give up anything that you're not going to get even more so. Job lost, but he gained more on the back end. Leaving, a, leaving your business, Luke five twenty seven through 28.
And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of customs, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Forsaking all. Just the simple words from the master, follow me. Can you imagine just leaving your whole, everything you've worked for, just walking away? Remember, the Apostle Paul says, I count everything as garbage, as dung, in comparison to Christ. A condition, again, this is self-denial, a condition of being a disciple in Luke 14, 33. It's a condition for being a disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. What about Paul's self-denial in Philippians 3, 8 through 9? I just alluded to this. I got ahead of myself. But anyway. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, <clears throat> but the, that which is through the, faith of, through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So everything that he, you know, he was a Pharisee, everything he had uh, built up in that religious system, he just said, this is worthless. I'm just going to walk away for the excellency of Christ. And this is the same mentality we have to give, we have to have. Now the last thing, the, the last thing in, in regards to self-denial, Luke 18, 29 through 30, we can't forget this one. A reward promised. All of us like rewards. I do. I know my children do. So there's a reward promised. Luke 18, 29 through 30. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. So Christ is worth it. Not just on that basis, but that's just one. The last thing. I'm going to say before I close. Is Jesus here in Matthew 5 gives us the penalty of sin in speaking of hell. You know, Jesus talked more about hell than anybody. In fact, we wouldn't even know much about hell if it wasn't for Jesus' teaching on it. But in verse 30, like it says here, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. The wages of sin is death, both physical and spiritual death. Proverbs eleven nineteen says, As righteousness tendeth to life, so he that pursueth evil pursueth it to his own death. The wages of sin is death. Make no mistake about it. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh corruption. Shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. You know, one thing about people when they sin, a lot of times they think they're getting away with it because uh, they sin and God doesn't immediately strike them down. They think, well, everything's fine. 
you know, my life's still going good. I, I'm well fed. I have, you know, I'm comfortable. So God must not be too angry with me. God's not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, he will reap. There's no way to avoid that. And then he says there, For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit. Remember, the law is spiritual. And he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That's a, a great promise from the Lord there. And in, the, and, and in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is clearly dealing with some tough issues that we deal with today. He's dealing with sin. He's dealing with the sin that's in our hearts that a lot of times we, we seek to avoid. But it's the, the bitter medicine that makes us well sometimes. And it's a process that we go through of sanctification. And uh, Jesus is pointing to the internal and the people that he's speaking to. And the way it does to the unbeliever today leaves you without a leg to stand on. It leaves you like the disciples said when Jesus was talking about the... um, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. Who then can be saved? With man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. So, just like murder, who is an adulterer? Well, don't rush back to the bathroom in the mirror and look at it too fast. But friends, it's a spiritual condition we have. Adultery is a spiritual condition that only God has the remedy for. Let's look square at the law of God and see ourselves for what we are and run to Christ. God bless you all.